a word that's used far too often and far too casually these days is the word amazing. It's become a synonym for the word impressive. So we say things like that movie was amazing, right? That that dessert was amazing. I know many of you will leave here today and say that sermon was amazing. Originally, the word amaze, it carried with it the idea of being totally bewildered, stupefied, being literally being brought into a maze. If you were dropped in a maze, you're looking around like, what is going on? According to the greatest English dictionary of all time, the Webster 1913, defined amazement like this. Amazement, quote, expresses a state in which One does not know what to do or what to say or what to think because one is stunned by the vastness or the greatness or the glory of something. That's a good dictionary, isn't it? (laughs) This understanding of amazement borrows its meaning from the New Testament. When we see the word amaze or marvel in the New Testament, this is the idea that's being communicated throughout Jesus's life from beginning through his public ministry. He left people utterly amazed at his birth. The shepherds were amazed when he was presented before Simeon at the temple. Mary and Joseph were Amazed. Crowds were amazed at his teaching. When he preached his first sermon at Nazareth in the synagogue, his neighbors were amazed. Christ's opponents were amazed at the answers that he gave. An air of amazement followed Jesus Christ like a shadow. But only twice in the whole Bible are we ever told that Jesus himself was amazed. What could possibly amaze Jesus? What could possibly astound the Son of God? What could possibly cause the Messiah to marvel? Dr. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. This is what Scripture says. After he had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him. Elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, 
for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes and to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who'd been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This morning, we hope to consider the faith of the centurion, the kind of faith that Jesus commends, the kind of faith that brings him amazement. I don't know about you. It's hard for me to even imagine that Jesus could be amazed at our faith. Don't you want Jesus to be amazed at our faith? Well, let's learn about that together. My prayer is that each one of us would be amazed with the Son of God, that he might grant us amazing faith to know him and to follow him. That's my prayer. Verse 1, look at at your Bibles. In verse 1, Luke always does this when he changes a scene. He gives us the setting. He tells us where Jesus is, where he is going. Immediately after this long sermon Jesus preached on the plain in Luke chapter 6, we're told that Jesus travels to Capernaum in verse 1. That was the bustling city right there on the Sea of Galilee, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was also called Lake Gennesaret. It's where his, many of his disciples were from. There was a fishing industry there. Jesus was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, and so he made Capernaum, as we've seen so far, his home base of operations for his public ministry. He introduces us, Luke does, to a fascinating person in verses 2 and 3, a Roman centurion. Now, children, uh, a Roman centurion was a soldier in the Roman army, and he was kind of like a captain. Um, And you can hear the word centurion. If you think about the word century, it has a hundred years. A centurion was a soldier who who had authority over a hundred soldiers. Now, we don't know who these soldiers, we don't know if some of these soldiers were the ones that John the Baptist ministered to back in Luke chapter three, verses 10 to 14. We're not told. We're just told that there was a centurion. Now, much like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 This centurion is clearly a God-fearer. He he fears, he honors, he serves the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And interesting enough, I think Luke places this story right after the sermon. It's because we're going to see as we go through this Roman, this Gentile, this soldier embodies much of the teaching Jesus just talked to us in Luke 6 about, about discipleship. We'll see that as we go through. One of the things he told us in that sermon was, be merciful even as your father is what? Merciful. 
And what's the first thing we're told about this centurion? He has mercy towards his servant who is deathly sick. Do you see that? This centurion has mercy. He he takes pity on his servant. We're told uh, by Matthew in the parallel account that his servant was deathly sick, quote, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Matthew 8, 6. Luke tells us that this centurion highly values his servant. Another way to render that is this servant was precious to him. He, he, he held this servant in honor. And so this, this the centurion, this soldier, it, he, he values, he, he, he finds this servant to be precious in his sight. And so he wants to do anything he can in his kindness and mercy to help this man who is deathly sick. Verse three, notice the centurion had heard about Jesus. Do you see that? The reason he sent word to Jesus is he had heard about Jesus. He had likely heard about the authoritative spirit empowered teaching that Jesus had given. When Jesus spoke, he spoke with absolute authority as the son of God. He'd probably heard about that. He'd likely heard that the power of the Lord was upon Jesus to heal. Luke had told us earlier, word about Jesus had gone throughout all of Galilee. He had heard that lepers were cleansed. The deaf received hearing. The blind received sight. And that Jesus even drew unlikely followers to himself. Tax collectors, zealots, and even fishermen. So the centurion had heard about Jesus. And he does something unusual, especially for a Gentile. He reaches out to the leaders of the synagogue. Interesting. He reaches out, we're told, to the Jewish religious leaders from the synagogue. Think about it. Someone in the military who's a Gentile is a part of the Roman oppressors, is reaching out to the Jews, the leaders in the synagogue, to go bring word to Jesus for help. Now we come to the first thing I want you to see in this passage. We're going to see three different perspectives on faith. What we're asking is, what is the kind of faith that amazes Jesus? Well, there's three perspectives on faith that we're going to find in this passage. The first perspective is right there in verses four and five. It's the deadly perspective on faith. The deadly perspective on faith. Verse four, and when they, that is... The, 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 the elders, the religious leaders, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, I want you to just see in these words that these, these elders who are seeking to praise the centurion. They reveal by their words a fatal misunderstanding of the grace of God. They reveal a fatal misunderstanding, a deadly misunderstanding that's prominent even today about what it means to walk by faith. Notice what they say in verse four. 
They, they say this centurion, they say he is what? Okay, I know some of you have masks on. We have to speak loud. He is what? Worthy. worthy. He's worthy. And then he gives. In other words, he deserves Jesus. This man deserves for you to do this for him. That's another way to render it. He's worthy. Why is he worthy? Well, two reasons. He loves our nation and he he contributed generously to the synagogue building capital campaign. Right. In fact, he, he paid for the whole synagogue. So he's generous and he loves Israel. He deserves. He's worthy. So think about this. They have a, a merit based kind of works righteousness. He did this for God. He did this for Israel. Now, you should do this for him. He, he's, he deserves. Do your part. God will bring you blessings because he owes you. Now, listen, friends, this perspective on faith is deadly. It is hypocritical. It's self-righteous and it's spiritually deadly. This is what characterized the leaders in Israel in Jesus's day. The Pharisees and the scribes, listen to what Jesus says about them later. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs. You outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead men's bones. Now, listen, this isn't just something that was a problem in the first century. This is something that's even in the church today. Especially if you were raised going to church. This is the mindset that you can easily slip into. You attend church faithfully. You go to Bible study. You may even tithe. You listen to sermons. You try to live a good life. You kind of pay your dues in a transactional kind of way. And then you slip into this kind of evangelical karma. Well, I've done my part now, God. I deserve blessing. Now, you may think I've never, I've never had that idea. Well, listen, let's say a trial comes into your life. Is the first thing that pops into your mind, God, what did I ever do to deserve this? This is the thinking. This man's worthy. Do it. So Jesus doesn't say anything. He he goes along with these elders because he came into the world to seek and save the lost. The centurion, however, does not share this same perspective of himself. Look at verses six to eight. We discover the devout perspective on faith, the devout perspective on faith. Verse six, when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Notice what he says, for I am what? Not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man sent under authority when soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. Wow, what a contrast. What a contrast. Think about it. Before even Jesus gets to his home, I imagine the, the centurion is thinking, okay, I'm a Gentile. Jews don't come to the homes of Gentiles. They don't want to be ceremonially unclean. 
Remember in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, Peter told Cornelius, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation, right? Jews didn't go hang out with Gentiles at their homes. And if you don't know what a Gentile is, that's just someone who's not a Jew. So the centurion sends word, don't even, don't even come to my house. Don't trouble yourself. Did you notice what the centurion called Jesus? He called him Lord. He said, Lord, 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 don't trouble, don't trouble yourself. Here's the reason. For I am not worthy. I don't deserve to have you come meet with me. I don't even deserve to be in your presence. I don't even presume to come to you. See, a devout faith has two sides to it. It sees oneself rightly and it sees Christ rightly. A devout faith sees oneself rightly. When a devout faith looks within, it doesn't see anything worthy or deserving of God's blessing. A devout faith sees oneself as needy, as spiritually poor, as morally bankrupt, as defiled by sin, and unworthy to enter God's presence. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? The very first thing, blessed is are the poor in spirit, that is, blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A devout faith recognizes the only thing we deserve is divine wrath. That's what we deserve. We have nothing to offer except a plea for divine mercy. That's this Roman centurion of all people had this faith. He had, he, had, he had not only kindness towards his servant, but he had humility before the Lord. He was a man who was in an authoritative position. He was a man of wealth. And he says, Lord, I'm not even worthy to have you come into my presence. Do you know who he sounds like? Beloved, who does he sound like? He sounds just like John the Baptist. Remember what John the Baptist said in the Gospel of Luke? I baptize you with water. But there is one who is mightier, who is coming. The strap, the strap of his sandals. I am not worthy to untie. And Jesus said about John the Baptist, no one born of woman is greater than him. See, that's, that's, that's what a devout faith looks like. I, Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. I'm not even worthy to come to your presence. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandal. But you see, if you have the faith that this centurion has, a saving faith, a devout faith, you don't just see yourself as unworthy. You see the utter worthiness of Jesus. You're not, just, you're not just looking within and saying, oh man, I'm a horrible person. You're looking at Jesus and seeing how utterly worthy he is. 
Remember, remember the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 about the tax collector and the Pharisee? Do you remember? The, the Pharisee is just listing out, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he lists out all the spiritual things he's done, just like these elders did. That, you know, I tithe, I do this, I do this, I do this. But then remember, what, what was the tax collector doing? He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And what, what was his prayer? God be what? <laughs> be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, the Pharisee was saying, Lord, I'm worthy. But the one who went away justified was the one saying, oh God, I'm utterly unworthy. But you're worthy. Give me mercy. Be merciful to me, the sinner. And that's exactly what's happening here. A devout faith has a right view of self, but it has a a right view of Christ. Did you notice? Remember at the end of the sermon, Luke 6, Jesus is talking about his authority. Those who trust in his word and build their lives on his word. Look what he says in verse 7. Look what he he sees in Jesus, this Gentile soldier. Look what he says, verse 7. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man centered in authority. You see, he, this is amazing. This devout faith of the centurion, he actually is arguing with Jesus. Say, you don't even need to come here. Just say the word, Jesus, and you can heal my servant. Now, there isn't another example of this happening in the Gospels. When Jesus heals someone, it's often, it's almost always, he touches them. He speaks a word in their presence. This centurion's faith is saying, you don't even have to be here. You just say the word and it's done. You know what he sounds like? Again, he sounds like, he sounds like Peter. Do you remember when Peter was trying to teach Jesus a fishing lesson? Remember that? And Jesus taught him a fishing lesson. Remember that? The Lord said, cast your nets over here. And Peter says, well, master, you know, we toiled all night and didn't catch anything. But at your what? At your word, at your word, master, we'll do it. And then every fish in the Sea of Galilee jumped in his nets. And Peter falls down and says, oh, how worthy of a fisherman I am. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. He saw the catch of fish that had come at the command of the Lord. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. You see, Peter saw himself as unworthy, but he saw the utter worthiness of Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening with the centurion. He sees his own utter unworthiness in light of the utter glorious worthiness and authority of Christ. And that's what devout faith does. A devout faith trusts Jesus at his word. and says, at your word, Lord, you can do it. At your word. People were always asking Jesus. Remember the Pharisees and the scribes, give us a sign that you're actually who you say you are. That's, that's not what the centurion says. He says, you, you say it. You say it, it'll happen. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. So let me ask you this. Do do you, 
Do you believe the words of Jesus like this? Do you read them and say, yeah, Jesus said it. I believe it. It's almost like the centurion had read Psalm 107, verse 20. Quote, the Lord sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Isn't that wonderful? Listen, the centurion assumes Jesus' words have the same healing power as God's words. Centurion is demonstrating a Hebrews 11.1 kind of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of the things what? Not seen. I don't have to see you, Jesus. But I know if my servant is healed, it's because you just said a healing word. Now, this is the devout perspective on faith. There's one last perspective I want you to see. We've seen the deadly perspective on faith, that of the elders and the religious leaders. And that's rampant throughout all of the apostate religion at the time in Israel. We've seen the the, the devout perspective of faith, of, of, of the centurion's own analysis of his faith. But now I want us to focus thirdly and finally on the divine perspective on faith. What is the divine perspective on faith? That is verses 9 to 10. What is Jesus' take on the centurion's faith? What does he say? Verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled. Your Bible may say he was amazed or he was astounded or astonished. That's what the word means. He was astonished at him and turning to the crowd that followed him. He said, I tell you, not in even in Israel have I found such faith. And then look at the result. This is almost like an afterthought. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant. Well, this is what's interesting. Did you notice we're not even told that Jesus said anything. He's in my mind. I'm thinking maybe Jesus like, okay, you think I have to speak it to make it happen? You see, the, the actual healing of the servant, the very problem that this passage started with isn't the point of the passage. The point of the passage is Jesus commending the centurion's faith. This passage is holding out for us. This is the kind of faith that marks all followers of Jesus Christ. Listen, it is not, listen, don't don't walk out here with this misunderstanding. It is not about the strength of your faith. It is the object of your faith. The, The centurion was trusting in Christ. The centurion was believing in Christ's words. We're not told about how strong his faith was. We're told that he believed. And that ought to mark every follower of Jesus. Jesus is amazed. Think about this. This is amazing. He says, I haven't found faith like this in in Israel. That's astounding. That's That's a praise for a Gentile. But it's also an indictment on Israel, isn't it? What an indictment on Israel. Matthew adds these words in his his account. Quote, 
I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, it's heartbreaking, will be thrown into outer darkness. And in that place, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The faith of the centurion is not only a lesson of what it looks like to believe, it's also an indictment on the apostate system of works righteousness that ravaged the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. Here's an uncircumcised Gentile exercising faith in Israel's Messiah. Isn't that amazing? He didn't grow up hearing God's word. He didn't grow up in a godly home. He was alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And yet he heard about Jesus and he trusted in him. What is it? What does it take to, to, to believe hearing something about Jesus and believing, trusting in his words? This pagan Former pagan, Roman centurion, member of the conquering, occupying Roman power is demonstrating a devout faith in Christ and in his word. He's also a rich man. Did you notice that? What what did he give? He gave a lot of money to build what? The synagogue. That's unheard of. And what we know later in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, it's really hard to be a wealthy man and a wealthy woman and, and go to heaven. In fact, Jesus said this, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now I've heard people say, well, you know, there was this gate, it was called the needle gate and there was a camel and had to get back this way. What? <laughs> no, he, he's saying it's, it's, it's impossible. It is impossible For man, a rich man, to enter the kingdom. But then Jesus goes on to say, what's impossible with man is what? Possible with God. So so what we're seeing right here is impossible apart from God. A rich man, a Gentile exercising this kind of faith. But listen, it wasn't this man's ethnicity or his occupation or his wealth. None of those are a hindrance at all to his God-given, spirit-wrought faith. And Jesus says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I seen faith like this. Well, what are we supposed to make of this? What are we supposed, how are we supposed to respond? Um, as I kept studying this passage, we were supposed to go on and look at the widow in Nain. And I, I didn't even get to verse 11 because there was so much here. So we'll, we'll get to the widow of Nain next week, Lord willing. But there's three things I think the Lord is calling us to as a church, as followers of Jesus together here at Franconia from this passage. First is this. The first application is to trust in Christ, to trust Christ. Luke intends for us to learn a lesson about genuine saving faith. The the centurion is held up for us by Jesus himself as the kind of devout faith, the kind of believing faith that ought to mark all followers of Jesus. So the question for you is, do you have faith this morning? Are you trusting in Christ? Listen, amazing faith, according to Jesus, 
It isn't just trying really hard to believe. Amazing faith that Jesus commends is this. Listen to me. It's not confidence that we've done the best we could. It's not, it's not trusting in our works or trusting in our merit, but it's relying totally and without reserve on Jesus. It's entrusting your eternity to him. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but according to his mercy. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. That's not yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one may boast. Listen, there's only one who is worthy and it's not you. And it's not me. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. No sinner can ever say to God, I'm worthy to receive your grace. You owe me, God. We are unworthy beggars who don't deserve to be in the presence of the king. We deserve hell. If you're not in hell this morning, you're doing better than you deserve. Amazing faith doesn't cry out, I'm worthy. Amazing faith cries out, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and power and wealth and wisdom and honor and might and blessing. If you have amazing faith, this saving, devout faith, you see yourself as unworthy, but more than that, you see the utter worthiness of the Savior, the one who came into the world to save unworthy sinners like us. That's why he came. Brothers and sisters, this ought to mark us as a church. I pray as a church that we as a congregation would be marked by humility and lowliness and meekness. These are not, if you, if you open up a church growth book out there, you know what you're never going to find in it? Meekness, lowliness, humility, a sense of divine wonder that we have been saved by Christ from beginning to end. If he... If he finished the work for us, will he not finish his work within us? We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. So let us be a church by God's grace that seek to strive together to help one another, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord which means to be fully pleasing to Jesus in everything. You want to pray for our church? Pray, Father, make Franconia Baptist Church a church that seeks to fully please Jesus in everything. If you're not a follower of Christ, I told you at the beginning that there are two times in the Bible where Jesus is amazed. 
where Jesus marvels. One is here in our passage. The only other time is in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. After preaching and doing ministry in his hometown, his hometown, the people he grew up with, rejected him. And we read these haunting words. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus is astonished by devout faith. And he's astonished by dead unbelief. Which kind of astonishment would Jesus have if he looked in your heart this morning? Because he is looking at your heart this morning. The Holy One of Israel is in the midst of us. Would he be astounded at your faith? Or would he be astounded at your unbelief? What more do you want in a Savior that's not found in the person of Jesus Christ? What could you possibly want? He didn't come into the world to save just religious people. Luke teaches us he came to save the lost, to save children, to save those who are old, to save beggars, to save the rich, to save the poor, to save widows, to save Gentiles, to save Jews, to save prodigals, to save prostitutes, to save Roman soldiers and to save wretches like you and me. You may not even believe in him this morning, but listen, you know, if you are honest with yourself, you don't even measure up to your own standards. You haven't kept any of your New Year's resolutions, probably. Well, if God exists and he does and he's holy, how do you think you measure up to him? But the good news of the gospel isn't trying to measure up, is humbling yourself to say, I have not measured up to our, my maker's demands. But the good news of the gospel is he isn't calling you to do anything. He's offering himself to you. He's offering himself to be your sacrifice of atonement and your perfect spotless righteousness. He is offering himself to you to bring you to God. He died for sinners on the cross. He rose again for sinners for our justification. And you remember at the cross, there was another centurion who saw him die and he said, truly, this man was the son of God. You need to listen to the witness of these eyewitnesses. You need to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. One writer put it this way. Faith is always the beggar's outstretched hand and never the rich man's gold. Faith is without worthiness in itself, but faith knits us to the infinite worthiness of Christ in whom the Father delights. Faith, listen, presents us perfect in the perfection of another. Trust Christ. That's the first thing. Secondly, 
Show kindness to others. Show kindness to others. Based on the sermon that Jesus just gave about showing mercy to others and doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, the centurion is a perfect example of how saving, devout faith lives itself out in acts of mercy, kindness, and love to our neighbor. Those who know mercy, show mercy. Those who know mercy, show mercy. Those who know kindness, show kindness. Listen to what J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite Anglicans, said. Let us learn a lesson from the centurion's example. Let us, like him, show kindness to everyone with whom we have to do. Let us strive, listen, let us strive to have an eye ready to see and a hand ready to help and a heart ready to feel and a will ready to do good to all. That wonderful. Then he says this, let us weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. This is the way we recommend Christ to the world. Kindness is a grace that all can understand. The one way to be like our blessed Savior, Ryle says, is His unwearied kindness. Listen, Christian, Jesus is unwearied in His kindness to you. You can't exhaust His kindness. There is more kindness in Him than sin in you. Being a jerk is not a spiritual gift. God is kind and he calls his people to live unwearied, kind lives to an unkind world. I remember the story, maybe you never heard it, about Augustine of Hippo, one of the greatest theologians in the Western church. Before he was a Christian, his mom, Monica, wanted him to go visit a preacher named Ambrose in Milan. It's the greatest preacher of the day. Augustine didn't want to go, but he wanted to obey his mother. So he goes to Milan to visit with Ambrose. But it wasn't the great preacher's words that struck him. This is what Augustine said in his confessions. He said this. Ambrose told me how glad he was that I had come to see him. My heart warmed to him. Not at first as a teacher of the truth, but simply as a man who was kind to me. That man of God received me like a father. Unknown to me, it was you, Lord, who led me to him so that I might be led by him to you. See, Christian, if you want a practical application from this passage, live out your devout faith by showing lavish, unwearied kindness to the unkind people around you this week. Third and finally, ask the Lord for healing. Ask the Lord for healing. Luke intends for us to express our faith in Christ's lordship practically by asking him for healing. You notice the centurion boldly believes that the Lord, the great physician, 
can speak his healing word and heal his servant. Just say the word, Lord. That's what he says. Now, I'm not, I'm not, there's only about two minutes left in this sermon. I don't have time to unpack all of the different theological camps in terms of spiritual gifts. You've got some people who are, who believe the sign gifts, healing and wonders and prophecy and tongues, uh, that, that those continue today. Those are continuationists, okay? And then you have other folks on the other end who are, who, who actually believe that the sign gifts, those healing gifts were, were something that happened in the apostolic age in order to, to build up the apostolic church and to authenticate the apostles' message. Now, the, that camp is called cessationist. Now listen, if you want a great book on this, Tom Schreider wrote, wrote a really great book with a great title. It's called Spiritual Gifts. Right? Spiritual Gifts. But here's the point. I don't care what camp you're in, whether you're over here or over here. Both sides agree God is still able and willing to heal. Amen? Amen. So the, the, the gift of healing like we see in the New Testament, it may not be in the church. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But we do know that God is able and willing to heal. And I think this text is encouraging us that we should pray wholeheartedly and boldly believing that God still is able to heal for his glory. Now, listen, I realize even in these words, you may be thinking to yourself, hey, I've prayed for myself. I've prayed for others. I've prayed in faith and healing never came. It never came in the way that I wanted. It didn't come in the time that I wanted. I think we can all testify to that. And I also realize there's countless false prophets out there who have fake healing ministries that just want your money. I'm not talking about any one of those. But I want you to think about this. For the Christian, for the Christian, in a real sense, for those who are in Christ, the Lord never ultimately says no to a request for healing. The great physician either says yes and he heals or he says not yet. Because the believer, even when the Lord says not yet in this life, will one day gloriously when the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised in the twinkling of an eye, never to perish again. And our corrupted bodies will put on incorruptibility and all sickness and disease and disorders and ultimately death itself will be swallowed up in victory. So brothers and sisters, until that day, we ask, we ask in faith. You have not because you ask not. I want to just conclude with this story and I'll be done. I promise. I've, I've shared this story before. And it kind of embodies this last point. Um, I met Allison, my wife, on September 9th, 2001, at about 1130 in the morning. I remember it vividly. I was at the first time visitors table at our college ministry there in Raleigh. And I'd never really met someone who was deaf before. And Allison had moved to the area to work for a cochlear implant manufacturer. I had moved to the area to work for IBM. 
And after church at lunch, there was about 30 people there. And Allison was explaining how she was born hearing. But when she was about one and a half, she had meningitis and the Lord took away her hearing. She's profoundly deaf. And for 20 years, she read lips. The Lord gave her the ability to read lips. She doesn't know sign language. You can imagine what reading lips has been like with people wearing masks everywhere. It's hard. And her parents prayed for healing. She prayed for healing. And then eventually she got the cochlear implant, which is a hearing device for the deaf. They turned it on and some of the first words she ever heard were the words that her parents said. We love you. But Allison said to us that Sunday, even though the cochlear implant is an amazing blessing. She said, I don't hear the way you hear. But she said, I still pray for healing. But even if the Lord doesn't answer my prayer in this life for healing, he will answer it in the next. And maybe because he loves me. He's saving my ears to when they're glorified. And the first thing I truly ever hear is worthy is the lamb who is slain. Now, that's amazing faith. Because faith is always the beggar's outstretched hand. It's never the rich man's gold. This kind of faith has no worthiness in itself, but it knits us to the infinite worthiness of Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. Do you have amazing faith? Amazing faith like that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to Look anywhere but your word to believe. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. For those who believe today, help our unbelief. And for any among us this morning. Who are not believing. Give them the gift of faith. That they might trust in Christ the author and finisher of our faith, the one who has secured the salvation of our souls and our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.